politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the counter-revolution here at the Conservative Review. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house here at Blaze Media Central Command for Tuesday. And it really actually feels like a Friday for whatever reason. I'm already exhausted and already in need of a vacation. By the way, if you guys know of anywhere in Pennsylvania or West Virginia where I can move to from this wretched state of Maryland, let me know. Because if I'm going to move, I want it to be in a place where it actually is in the mold of our founding vision. I can't find such a place. Talked about that a lot last week. Trying to find, or at least foment, if we can't find a revolution in some of the most conservative conservative counties in this country. Yet we're not seeing it. We are now on day 130 of the tyranny of coronafascism. And day 53 of the anarchy. Of the rioting, the breakdown in law and order. The police standing back. Folks, we talked a lot the last couple of days, really the last week, about the virus. We've gone into great depth about what's going on. I have a lot more information um, you're going to find on my Twitter account. Again, you follow me at RM Conservative. You'll see all the things where I don't have time to write about or talk about. Obviously, my articles at conservativereview.com. You could sign up at our Facebook fan page, Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary, or Minutemen Speak Easy. That's the private page where you could request to join. And you guys could work together, collaborate on projects. And I don't have time to get into all that. Maybe later today, if we have time at the back end of the hour, we'll get back to some of the viral stuff. But I wanted to switch gears back to the tyranny, or I'm sorry, the anarchy today. And I want to start just just by saying this. When I was growing up in the early 90s, I remember when we were in school and, you know, you would first broach the issue of politics, the news in elementary school. It was known to everyone that the distinguishing factor at the time, what deciphered a conservative from a liberal so-called Republican from a Democrat, was law and order, was crime. That was the big issue. Crime was exploding. It pushed the crime bill in 1994 that was one of the last great bipartisan pieces of legislation. And then it resulted in a generation-long decline in violent crime. It wasn't perfect. We should have locked up even more people. But at least we started deterring and punishing crime. And the dividends were amazing. I've been warning the last few years how we were on our way to reversing that trend. Well, now it's gotten so bad between the coronavirus jailbreak where they released over 100,000 criminals and between the rioting and Just the entire reverse Jim Crow, the notion that if you either are black and you're a criminal, or even if you're white but you're participating in the criminality on behalf of that blood libels matter cause, you now could do the crime, but you don't do the time. 
And in fact, if you defend yourself against them, then you are the one who will be prosecuted. I've said before, this has nothing to do with the police. You'll see as a civilian, you will be made to care. You will have to speak out. You will have to react because they're going to come for you. And when they come for you, you're not going to have a right to self-defense because this is not about police brutality. It's not about police tactics. This is about creating a reverse Jim Crow system reminiscent of South Africa and Zimbabwe where everything is built upon a racial pyramid rather than equal justice under the law. And I've said before, I would rather us abolish the police at this point. Because we've abolished the police. We're on day 53 of this anarchy. We've abolished them in terms of going after criminals. So you know what? I don't want them around because you know what they are being used for? Corona fascism. And arresting you or serving a warrant if you defend yourself. To me, it is truly a failure of this administration and the Republican Party in general to not jujitsu the left on the issue of gun violence. I've been saying this all along. Almost all of the shootings that take place are repeat violent offenders that have gun felonies in their background and they are placed on parole instead of serving hard time. Yet if you defend yourself with a gun now on your property from a mob, you will be prosecuted. So you guys all saw the news yesterday that the the McCloskey couple, Mark and Patricia, um, that was the couple that was seen defending their home in St. Louis a couple weeks ago. You really have to picture the scene there that this is a private gated neighborhood. They broke down the gate. It wasn't like they, you know, preemptively got scared of some protesters. They broke down the gate. And those streets are private. They're not public. Remember, these people are not living far out. This is the equivalent of a wealthy suburb, but it's not in the suburbs. It's right in the city. It's a historic district. So it's right over there. And they were seeing all the violence. So this Soros-backed St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner She has a history of letting violent rioters go. She has dropped charges against gun felons. She has sued the city's police department. Crime is skyrocketing in St. Louis. They are now on pace for the most murders since 1994. The entire baseline of the generational long drop in crime is now being erased. Yet she goes and charges the McCloskey family with felony misuse of, of, of their weapons and uh, aggravated assault. Now, finally, this got so much attention that at least finally, finally, we see Republican officials there reacting. The Attorney General Eric Schmidt filed a brief to dismiss the charges. Governor Mark, Mike Parson promised a pardon. But what do you do if you're in an area where you don't have that? If you're stuck with a Jim Crow 
local prosecutor, and a Jim Crow governor and attorney general. Where do we turn? Why do we not see Trump's Justice Department doing civil rights inquiries into these Soros prosecutors? Into this two-tier justice system? I want to juxtapose this to a story I referenced yesterday. In the, in, the, in the shootout we saw in Chicago, it happens in St. Louis too, but in Chicago, among the many shootings over the weekend, a five-month-old baby was grazed in the right eye by a bullet when this guy, this 21-year-old, allegedly gets out of a car in a drive-by shooting, shoots two adults, and obviously along with that, the five-year-old baby. Luckily, the baby is going to survive. But here's the deal. 21-year-old Tantum Davis. He's accused of discharging his firearm, firing 14 rounds. According to prosecutors, Davis was arrested on June 26th of last year, so about a year ago, for, you guessed it, illegally possessing a firearm. Yet, he was out on probation. This is the story of our system. This is the key to Trump's re-election. I know my colleague, Steve Dace, says it's really the lockdown and you know getting the corona fascism right, getting people back to work. I, I think he's right fundamentally. And we'll see what happens today when Trump resumes his briefings, whether he will use his bully pulpit to actually push back and use of use all of our data and fire some of these clowns. But I do think that the issue of law and order and innocent Americans being attacked and then being prosecuted while gun felons are not, our guns are taken away so we can't defend ourselves while these murderers are caught multiple times harming people with firearms and, and doing other crimes. And they're not locked up. That is a more powerful narrative. Because part of what harms us with the virus is panic and fear. They're the the worst human emotions. But ironically, from a political standpoint, those human instincts work in our favor when it comes to crime, self-defense. Those same suburban female voters that might get roped into the corona lies because they're scared of dying. Well, they're also scared of an uncontrolled mob too. It is shocking that there is no unified Republican or even Trump message on this issue. You know how bad things have gotten. Atlanta, okay? From July 5th to July 11th, murders increased by six as compared to the same time last year. Over a four-week period, Atlanta had 17 murders. That's a 240% increase from the same time last year. Chicago reported a 417% increase in murder the week of July 6th to July 12th relative to last year. 
Chicago has seen almost 500 more shootings this year than last year. Almost 500 more. I believe it's roughly 35 or so percent increase. And last year we were talking about all the violence there. Houston. Murders are up 200% this July as compared to July 2019. And so far, they're up 40% for the year. What are they seeing? Drug trafficking and gang activity. What about LA? From June 21st to June to July 5th, they have seen more than a doubling of the murder rate relative to the same time last year. New York City. 277% increase in shootings so far in July relative to last year. 97% of June shooting victims were black. Yet Republicans have no narrative. They have no ability or desire to even speak about this stuff. Philadelphia. The police department, they reported 224 murders as of last week for for 2020. It's up 25% since last year. Shootings are up 55%. Where are we headed here? We are headed back to where we were before. Milwaukee. Milwaukee is on pace to have the most murders since um, 1990, St. Louis since 1994. The only city I haven't seen a huge difference is my own hometown of Baltimore, just because they were already at record high levels. So it's hard to uh, hard to change things. But folks, every single day there is story after story after story. How hard is it for each Republican every day to bang away at these cases in in his or her respective state? Instead, they're pushing police reform, not crime reform, not criminal reform, police reform. This is from the Star Tribune, Minneapolis Star Tribune. A 29-year-old predatory offender dragged a woman from her Minneapolis front porch nearly a quarter mile to a church parking lot and raped her, according to charges in the latest of several violent allegations against the man dating back to his mid-teens. Tyree Terrell Johnson of Crystal was charged Friday in Hennepin County District Court with first-degree criminal sexual conduct in connection with the assault on June 24th that sent her to the hospitals with facial injuries. At the time of the alleged rape, here's the key, Johnson was under intensive court-supervised release. You're going to find that term a lot being used. Intensive court-supervised release and registered with the state as a predatory offender for a rape when he was 15 years old. He was sentenced to nearly 16-year term, a length above state guidelines, and served more than 10 years in prison. In December 2018, Johnson was charged with murder in the shooting 
that October of 54-year-old Darren P. Watkins in a North Minneapolis alley. However, Johnson was acquitted in July 2019 of second-degree murder and two related misdemeanor counts. See, they always talk about, oh, there's an overcharging, over-incarceration. For every one of those, there's people we can never land convictions on. I'm not done yet. In December 2019, Johnson was accused of domestic assault by strangulation. Domestic assault by strangulation. This is after having served 10 years for rape and after having been at least charged. He was acquitted, but he was charged with murder. He was acquitted on the felony counts, found guilty of misdemeanor domestic assault in April. So he didn't serve any time. You know, it's kind of funny. People who are prone to shoot and misuse guns, they tend to do that again. People who have a tendency to rape, they tend to do that again. See, especially someone when they are young. I mean, imagine a 15-year-old boy going and grabbing a woman and doing that. I mean, the psychology behind that, the, the criminology behind that, that is not someone that is reformed. These are 80, 20, 90, 10 political issues. Republicans refuse to fight for them. I want to share one more story with you. This is from Jason Rance, a good conservative columnist and radio personality from KTTH in Seattle. And he basically shares a heartbreaking letter from a Seattle police officer. I'm going to read some of this. I'm a police officer in your city. I say your city because I don't live in the geographic boundaries that make up Seattle. My kids were fully entrenched in school in a neighborhood city when I decided to become an officer and I didn't want to uproot them. My experiences are my own, but I believe other officers will have had similar experiences and may be nodding their heads when they read portions of this letter. I thrust myself into law enforcement after finishing my training and being put on patrol. I chased the criminals like most new officers in an effort to keep them from victimizing you. During that time, I won awards from the community and my commanders. It was nice to be recognized, especially by minority groups, who unfortunately make up a disproportionate amount of crime victims. I've suffered significant injuries while serving you, some of which caused me to be hospitalized, and others were painful but transitory. Collaborating with residents to address the crime and predatory criminals in their neighborhood have been some of the most satisfying experiences in my life. I hold close to my heart the interactions I've had with those residents, but even closer to my heart are the drug addicts and criminals who I've assisted in getting their life together. And he goes through some of this stuff, some of his successes. And, um, you know, he, he goes on to say, like, you know, he wasn't one of these cowboys. You know, he tried to help even criminals get their lives back together. Police officers are very mission-oriented problem solvers by nature. And I'm definitely that type of person. During, the, during that time, I have had a mayor get angry and throw papers at me. Several chiefs angry enough to try to get me to quit for being a truth teller. Friends kill themselves when proper leadership could have saved them. And agitator lawyers 
go on TV and demand I be fired for a lie, they were told. I once saw a white woman walking with her five children in tow, biracial children, by the way. I waved at them from my patrol car and received a friendly wave in return from their five-year-old, only to have the mother yell angrily at the child, don't you wave at the police. I gotta admit that one stung, put tears in my eyes, that anyone would do that to their child. It almost broke me emotionally. My spouse could tell you how it affected me. It still hurts. It didn't break me. Later that night, I found a broken child's bike abandoned in the ditch. I saw it as a cosmic sign and a way to return to my mission, almost the mission first. I rebuilt the bike and a few days later dropped it off at the child's porch with a note that said, compliments of the Seattle Police Department. I hope that kid enjoyed the bike. I always imagined what the smile on her face must have been like when she found it on her porch. I cannot forget to mention that people have tried to kill me. Once by vehicle ta- attack, another time by fire, and a few times by firearms and knives. I've always returned to the mission after surviving those encounters. I want that last part to sink in. People tried to kill me while I was trying to protect you and your loved ones. Yet I always came back to the mission serving you, protecting you as best as I can. Taking my work phone home with me and answering your phone calls and texts on my days off, making you feel like it was safe for your kids to play ball in the street because that horrible neighbor was now in prison. Along the way, my spouse and children suffered. They didn't understand why I would choose to experience all this for strangers. Over the years, I've tried to explain it to my family. I think my spouse understands, but I'm not sure my children have had enough life experience to fully grasp what I've been teaching them. They didn't understand why when a person was elected president that Seattleites didn't like, why I had to go to don't be a Nazi training. The people who live with me know I'm the furthest thing from that, so why are the people I serve worried I would round up and imprison them for some far-off politician? By the way, I just want to interject. That kind of is happening now. They're putting mask mandates in, in uh, Broward County. Again, it's not, it's not for criminals. It's for you and me. Which is why I'm all for abolishing the police at this point. But anyway, let me read on. And he, said all, he, he says that all the while, none of this ever broke him. None of this ever broke him. Then came the Floyd protests. It was not a new experience to have protesters screaming in my face, telling me to go kill yourself, put out your Glock, put it in your mouth, pull the trigger, make the world better. They hired you because you have an IQ below 80, and you'll do whatever you're told. I know you beat your wife. Blaming me for the actions of another person far away, I'm used to that. I, I can ignore it. Then they threw glass bottles, rocks, pieces of steel, chunks of concrete, and even improvised explosive devices. I used the tools I was issued and trained on to stop the assaults and keep the East Precinct so the mission could be performed. And he goes on to say, it still didn't break me, even dealing with that. Then came the politicians standing right in front of me on the front lines calling me a racist killer cop, standing next to people who are telling us to kill ourselves with people around them handing out rocks and bottles, which were thrown to me, thrown at me shortly thereafter. That didn't break me either. Nice try, Anarchus. 
I bet you weren't were surprised that we still did and I still did my duty. So he goes on to say that all this happened and it didn't break him. These are just anarchists. Keep doing the mission. Whether you are afraid to speak up to your political leaders, you are allowing it. Whether you feel like I pay the police to deal with that stuff, or maybe you just try to ignore political stuff altogether, this is your responsibility. Only you can change it. Only you can march in the streets against the mob or flood the city council meetings. Only you, who don't want to see mayhem, disorder, and anarchy in your city, can stop it. Only you can make the politicians allow us to complete the mission. Only you can unbreak me. Only you can let me return to the mission. I await your decision. And I think that's true. It's time for us to fight back. Now, to me, I think this requires, it has to start in good areas where we have good sheriffs to work on sheriffs deputizing people so we we establish, at least in the redder counties, a culture of self-defense. I think the people need to join in with this and that will demonstrate a bold contrast with places like Seattle. But we also need leadership from the man who said he would have avoided this very outcome, Donald J. Trump. Trump needs to use the budget bill that's going to be voted on within the next two months to push for the following. Under threat of veto. Rather than threatening states with a carrot and stick through federal grants to make police more like social workers... How about dangling funds to states that work on prosecuting violent criminals? They should condition grant funds to states meeting benchmarks in prosecuting repeat offenders and probation violators. It's that simple. Obviously, defund states that are sanctuaries for criminal aliens and anarchists Suspend all DOJ grants to local prosecutors, Soros prosecutors that engage in Jim Crow. Increase funding for court systems to expedite cases so you don't have all these people out on jail, out of jail, pending trial for two years. Toughen mandatory minimums for gun felons. Have a real anti-lynching bill where if a group of people, whatever their race is, Surround a victim, whatever his race is, and beat that person. Anyone who participates in that mandatory 25 years in prison for bodily injury and mandatory life without parole with the death penalty option, at least for the main perpetrators. I mean, you're never going to get that for the others, but they should get life if they participated in a mob assault unprovoked that results in death. We need an anti-gang legislation. Anti-gang legislation to go after all these gangs. 
Someone who's caught committing a crime as a ma- in furtherance of gang activity, massive mandatories. In addition, thanks to Gorsuk and several other justices, so many parts of the Armed Career Criminal Act passed by Reagan, which includes provisions like 924C3 that prohibits using or carrying a firearm during a federal crime of violence, he, he said it's unconstitutional. That needs to be restored. And yes, Trump needs to federalize the National Guard to protect interstates, protect property. I'm sick of Rand Paul suddenly saying, it's a state issue. Or you saw he tweeted that out. Ken Cuccinelli, who's Deputy Homeland Security Secretary, ter- Secretary argued with him on Twitter last night. What, what local law enforcement? They're letting this go on for 53 days. Domestic violence and insurrection, it's in the Constitution. They need to start prosecuting the BLM organizers under anti-terrorism statutes. Attorney General Barr seemed to indicate he would, but I'm not seeing it. And then rather than this stupid piece of legislation they're working on for another round of pay, 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 another round of just throwing money at people, How about reimbursing business owners for the property damage? That will further accentuate the the, the plight of the victims, accentuate the damage done by BLM, and put Democrats in a very rough position. And if they fail to have some of these provisions in the budget bill, Trump should veto it. Oh, Daniel, we're going to have a government shutdown. We've had a national shutdown. We have our schools shut down. I don't give a damn about the 17% of non-essential federal workers who won't work and will wind up getting paid anyway when it's over. Right now, he's going to lose anyway. He's got to toss a Hail Mary pass, and this is the best one you could do. It's time for Trump to fulfill his promises. Why is it that everything he promised, three and a half years later, we get the worst result ever? Oh, but it's it's not his fault. So if it's not his fault, then what do you then then what's the point of a second term? I, I just want you guys to understand. Let's say some miracle happens. Okay, let's say Biden's caught with a dead body in his trunk. Trump wins a second term. The, it's not like the left is going to go home. They're going to be even more violent. The blue cities and blue states are going to engage in, in even more neo-confederacy and rebel against the law. They'll have even more Jim Crow. So what are you going to do about that? The left doesn't threaten and debate like Trump does on Twitter. They do. Whether it's legal or illegal, they go and do. you got to have a response to that. So anyway, that's... This is the discussion we need to have now because I'm just telling you if they're not going to do this then I'm for going in the opposite direction. I am for abolishing the police for two reasons. Number one, I'm sick of the subtlety. I want people to be forced to fight. Our people are comatose. They got to fight back. That's number one. And number two, If they are not going to be used to go after the bad guys, I don't need them as a tool to go after the good guys and enforce Corona fascism. Or like we saw with the McCloskey family, 
get a warrant to take their guns away and eventually prosecute them and book them. I don't need that. Which brings me back to the virus. The remainder of the time we have here, I want to just update you on some of what we're seeing, what we're working on with the virus. So just wanted to start our briefing by mentioning my piece today on the border. It's my seventh in the series. We talked about it yesterday of how just like we're seeing with the rioting and the crime and the self-defense that what government should do, it doesn't do what it doesn't do. It does. We're the victims, but we're treated like criminals. The criminals are treated like the victims. It's the same thing here. They go and they import Mexico's epidemiological curve and then blame Americans and say, oh, you, you didn't lock down enough. You need, you need more lockdowns. So late last night it came out, Hidalgo County, which likely will wind up having more per capita deaths than anywhere. Heck, maybe it will eclipse New York simply because they're getting all the Mexican cases. They now have a stay-at-home order. To this day, I don't even know, I, and I don't think they are man- mandating a quarantine if what is deemed essential, you travel to Mexico and come back. It is truly Sodom and Gomorrah. But anyway, there's a Houston Chronicle article out today that takes what I said yesterday a step further. Remember how I said 40% of the deaths are in border counties now, even though they're 9% of the population and an even smaller percent of the population density, which is enormous. But I said once we know it's coming from there and we know that the border counties are small and don't have the hospital space, how much of the hospitalizations in a place like Houston are from there? Well, Houston Chronicle says they're full with transfers from rural counties. Now, it's not from rural counties like, you know, I don't know, ones near the Arkansas border or something like in the northeast part of the state, in Louis Gomer's district. It's not where they're coming from. We know it's coming from Hidalgo and Cameron counties, Webb County, which is where you got Laredo. They're being transferred. So the truth is slowly coming out. Another thing I wanted to move on to is just the death rate. You know, again, just another way of, you know, talking about the death rate. There was an interesting study that came out about Idaho. And this is Blaine County, Idaho, had a ski resort. And we saw this in Europe where you have, like, these outbreaks. You know, people get together in a ski resort, and they really had the virus, and they they spread it among each other. Okay? And so you had, you know, a number of infections from that in, in Blaine County. It turns out that the IFR, okay, once they figured out the, um, the prevalence of the virus compared to antibodies, in other words, they test the antibodies and like, okay, so then you could extrapolate that roughly that percentage has it in the county. And then you take the number of deaths in the county and then you divide it by the number of people. Okay? 
So Blaine County had just five deaths. If you do the math, however number of um, thousands of cases that they that they surmise they've had, or I'm sorry, not thousands, but they had like 600 or so cases, it turns out that the IFR is 0.094%. In other words, right under 0.1, the benchmark given for the seasonal flu. And again, like we've said before, likely more people have been exposed to it, and it could be many more people with the TSL immunity. But they just don't present with antibodies. So so really, more people have gotten it than even we know, therefore making it, you know, your likelihood of dying from it is even lower than that. Right? It's that simple. And that's where we are. The T-cell immunity. Like I said, in Germany, they found 81% of people, random sample of blood, they had this T-cell immunity. My buddy Justin Hart, we've had him on the show a couple times. And he actually went through the fatality rate. And he came up with a couple of interesting tidbits just comparing different things. If you catch the flu, you have a 0.0215% chance of dying. If you catch COVID-19, you have a 0.0265 chance of dying. A <laughs> very little difference. If you are healthy and under 50 and you catch COVID-19, you have a 0.00165% chance of dying. So that's two zeros, okay? Now follow this. If you get in your car and you drive 300 miles for a summer vacation, you have a 0.025% chance of dying. So an entire decimal point higher. And yet this is what we're doing. Mandatory mass maintenance. By the way, I don't know if you saw this story out of China where two teenagers were you know, doing uh, you know, sports in school. They have to wear masks there because there are animals about it you know, very China-like, and we've become like China, and they died with, with carbon dioxide problems. Don't tell me that you go and put that on your face in 100-degree weather for long periods of time that's not going to be a problem. I mean, this is simple common sense. Simple common sense. Then we have the issues with the case count. When you have this obsessive counting and everything's just tested, you're going to have a lot of fake cases. Connecticut Department of Health says that between June 15th and July 17th, they had a total of 144 positive test results. 90, more than half, were discovered to be false. So that's what that. Then we have this article out of WWSB, Sarasota, Florida. That many say there have been some problems in really getting a handle on how much the virus is in our community. It has nothing to do with being able to get tested, but instead the results. The quickest turnaround is about 48 hours, and the majority of the time, it can take about a week 
of finding out if you're infected or not. However, the most recent issue is getting back results that aren't even yours. Quote, I got a call asking for me, and they told me that it had tested positive. I was like, positive for what? Then the lady said, for COVID. And I said, that's impossible. I never got tested, ma'am, Mindy Clark said. Clark had gone to the drive through testing site at Manatee Rural Health, but before she was able to get swabbed, she left the line because she realized it was for people with symptoms only. I told them they needed to take this off my record, and they said I had to prove it to them that I wasn't positive, Clark continued. She tested negative just two days later and also tested negative for antibodies. Plus, according to many of our viewers, this hasn't only happened to her. Clark says if she and many others have been incorrectly identified as positive in the state system so easily, how accurate are the numbers that are being released daily? And that's the thing. We are being lied to. Now, let me be clear. Some of this, some of this is just the chaos. I don't think it's all insidious. But what is insidious is to obsessively test bomb every damn thing of a virus that 95% of the time is less than the flu. And for most of that remaining 5% is very, very manageable and treatable. And you just really need to focus on a tiny cohort of people. That was always the issue. We've been yelping about this for four months already. But this is what happens when you turn America into China. Utterly, utterly ridiculous. That's what we have here. Another fascinating article I wanted to share with you. Time to read a little bit of it. This is from Philip Magnus of the American Institute for Economic Research. Some good stuff there. And he talks about, there's this phony argument we talk about a lot that goes on where they're basically saying, well, most European countries followed a responsible pattern. They crushed the virus with lockdowns. And they only began to reopen when it was safe, and now they don't have problems. But America waited too long to lock down, didn't do it enough, opened too early. Right? That's the narrative. And it's a very convenient political narrative. But is it true? Where's the evidence? Quote, to assist in answering that question, we may turn to a helpful tool created by the University of Oxford's Blavnik School of Government that allows cross-country comparison of the COVID policy responses. Among their trackers is a government stringency index that records the strictness of the lockdown-style policies that primarily restrict people's behavior. As described on the project's website, the stringency index assigns scores on a 0 to 100 point scale to capture the severity of the country's response. Points are awarded for the familiar suite of non-pharmaceutical policy interventions adopted in the name of counteracted COVID. These include school and business closures, event cancellations, restrictions of large gatherings, internal and external travel restrictions, shelter-in-place or lockdown-style attempts to confine residents to their homes. It also tracks how these policies changed over time as countries imposed greater restrictions or began to reopen from the previous lockdown state. So how does the U.S. stack up against other developed countries? Were we behind the curve in responding? Did we reopen too early? So it basically shows a graph, and America is right up there 
in terms of the severity index. The overall stringency of the U.S. response increased from 8.33 over 100 scale on March 1st to 52.31 on March 16th. By March 21st, the U.S. stringency index rose to 72.69, where it more or less remained for the next two months. At its peak, the U.S. stringency index reached 75.93, which is comparable with Great Britain. And, you know, it's roughly where Denmark, Norway, Germany, Switzerland were. Only Italy, France, and Ireland topped the 90 mark. Of these countries, almost all imposed their most stringent policies at exactly the same time, the week surrounding the March 16th release of the Imperial College report. Only Italy, which was an earlier hotspot, preceded the wave of lockdowns. In short, there is no evidence that the United States lagged behind Europe in its lockdown timing, nor is there any evidence that the U.S. lockdowns were meaningfully less stringent than the average Western European nation. What about the rush to reopen? So obviously, individual states reopened at different times. Georgia, for example, repealed its stay-at-home order April 30th. But most others began relaxing mid-June, mid-May to mid-June. For comparison, most European states began their reopening at approximately the same time in early May. And quite a few did so at a significantly faster rates than the U.S., After Belgium began relaxing its lockdowns around June 8th, only the UK and Ireland remained at a comparable lockdown stringency to the United States. Ireland reopened on June 26th, with its stringency index dropping to 38.89. As of July 4th, and even with slow reopenings underway in most states, the stringency index shows the United States 68.89 as a whole. Okay. In other words, we we actually beat out Ireland. England is the only country that had more stringent level in place for longer. So in other words, we overshot it because we talked about it, the openings of Germany and Denmark and we in Switzerland, we talked about this throughout May. Like the notion that somehow we reopen it, it's nonsense. We didn't. And we still haven't to a large degree. It's a joke. The only thing that we did reopen was the greatest social mobility of gathering ever, which is the Floyd riots. That's the thing. And of course, Mexico. Again, I mean, this this is really, this is a beautiful piece. And it's really the other side to the story of what we've been talking about. Because again, you go through the countries, New Mexico is the best result at the border, and it has the highest social mobility score, meaning people moving around. Arizona had the most stringent. California, actually their mobility score is not as low as Arizona, but the laws were stricter. 
But the mobility scores are what's important because it shows what people actually did. It's all the border. And again, one of the best states in America is Wisconsin, which is the only state that truly did have a reopening because of the the state Supreme Court. Georgia eventually got hit, which I really think they had a lot of protests there, plus the seasonality, because they didn't get it that much before. But again, it was way, way, way after their April 30th reopening. It doesn't make any sense. It was right along the timing of the um, protests. But not... But not the... um, The reopening. So there you have it. America was well within the median of the European stringency and actually kept it for longer than almost all of them. And it pretty much started it around the same time as everyone except for Italy, which had the more evident problem earlier than anyone else. So this whole premise is just a goddamn lie. I'm sick of people just... You know, I don't think we did a good job. Like, no, it's not proven by the data. Then again, this is not about data. It's not about lockdowns. I mean, it is in a way, but it's about controlling us. The same reason why we locked down Americans and had quarantines and interstate travel bans, but didn't prevent people from traveling to and from Mexico, including Mexican nationals coming directly for care. The same reason why people that have the right sort of political cause are able to beat, surround cars, block highways, loot, steal, damage, arson, private and and public property, and avoid prosecution. While people who defend themselves against those people get prosecuted. In the coming days, we're going to be looking for solutions. But we need the president to get on the playing field. We'll see what he says with this briefing today. This is really his last chance to turn it around. If not, we need to start thinking about which counties we move to and start our own republic. I know it's a kind of a sour point to end on. But again, you, you guys come here for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And God bless you all. See you all. Same time, same place tomorrow.